Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where we will continue our study in the gospel according to Luke. And um, last week we looked at chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. This morning I want to zoom in and focus on those final verses, verses 21 through 24, where there are some things that I uh, do not want to pass over, uh, which could not have been said in such a short space of time last week. What I want to do this morning then is to reconsider this blessed revelation. You recall at the very end of this text that Jesus says to His disciples that they were blessed. Blessed are you. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. And in, uh, in the first part of this passage, we see that there's a, a kind of an invitation. An invitation through an example where Jesus models for His disciples the relationship of intimacy that He enjoys with God the Father as God the Son as He prays and as He speaks about His unique relationship. This constitutes the essential part, the essential aspect of this revelation that they received and we are to understand it then as we come to this text and we see what Jesus says in this prayer. We are to understand it as not just revelation concerning His person, but also an invitation to share in the same kind of intimacy as children of our Heavenly Father. And so, if you found your place in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, follow along with me as I read. In that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we receive your word this morning, we pray that you would indeed open our eyes so that we might see this wondrous revelation as well. May we not be such a people that are wise in our own eyes, that are conceited in our own understanding. And so, such a people from whom these glorious truths are hidden and concealed. So work in us, we pray, O Lord, to produce in our hearts the kind of repentance that issues forth in faith, the kind of humility that is ready to receive the glorious truths that you declare, that you show to us through your Son. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But in our times together, as we've gathered on Sunday mornings and we've read Scripture together during the service before the uh, preaching of the Word, we've been working through Genesis and Exodus, key texts in Genesis and Exodus. And I want to take you back on a kind of highlight tour through those texts in Genesis and Exodus to focus particularly on the way in which God revealed Himself to these ancient men of old, to this ancient people whom he called. You just listen as I read these texts and you'll note various patterns. You see, in Genesis 17, verse 1, 
We read, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Thus, God made himself known to Abraham as the Lord of heaven and earth. As he made covenant promises to him, he declared that, to Abraham that I am God Almighty. So he made himself known. In short, he revealed to Abraham that he was not only the God of all things, but he was also Abraham's God in a unique and personal way. And he called Abraham to trust him and to be faithful to him alone within the context of that covenant relationship. In future generations, God revealed himself within the same covenant relationship as the same God. Thus he said to Isaac, Abraham's son, I am the God of Abraham, your father, in Genesis 26, 24. And to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, in Genesis 31, 13. And likewise, in Genesis 46, verse 3. He also revealed himself to Jacob as God Almighty in Genesis 35, 11, Those same words that we heard him declare to Abraham. And as the God who had been with him for all his life when he called him to return from Laban's house to the land that God had promised him. In other words, he showed Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons that he is the same God that revealed himself to Abraham that he called them into the same covenant as he made with Abraham. So he called them likewise to trust him in the same way, to follow him in faith, living faithfully before him all their days. Therefore, when God appeared to Moses at the appointed time, and he first said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, there at the burning bush in Exodus 3, 6, we see that here God is showing himself to Moses is the same God, and yet in that next stage in the progress of God's self-revelation, he brought Moses further in, revealed something further of himself to Moses. He did not merely make himself known as God Almighty, as he says in Exodus 6.3, but he also declared to Moses his own name, saying, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, that is Yahweh, the God who is, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Thus God made himself known to his people in times past, progressively, but in these latter days, we know him differently, not because he has changed, but because he has revealed something even further of himself. For as the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because God sent forth His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us from under the law and to make us heirs and children through adoption so that we might share in that glorious inheritance that enables us to call ourselves children of God because we have been so called by God Himself. 
We now relate to God not merely as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, but we relate to God as our Father because He made Himself known to us as the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1.3, the Apostle Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And commenting on those words in his commentary on these epistles, John Calvin wrote so many years ago, For as formerly, by calling himself the God of Abraham, he designed to mark the difference between him and all fictitious gods. So after, he has manifested himself in his own Son. His will is not to be known otherwise than in him. Hence they who form their ideas of God in His naked majesty apart from Christ have an idol instead of the true God. Calvin would go on to say this, Whosoever then seeks really to know the only true God must regard Him as the Father of Christ. For whenever our mind seeks God except Christ be thought of, it will wander and be confused until it be wholly lost. Peter meant at the same time to intimate how God is so bountiful and kind towards us for except Christ stood as the middle person, His goodness could never be really known by us. You see, at these several stages in redemptive history, God revealed something further of Himself in His nature and being. To Abraham and to the patriarchs, He revealed Himself as God Almighty, showing that He was the only God and is the only God. And He made promises to them, promises which He fulfilled in the course of time to show that He is the faithful God who keeps His covenants when he makes a promise, he keeps it. And to Moses, he affirmed the same revelation, but added to it the revelation of his name, Yahweh, which we translate the Lord, that is, I am. And he fulfilled promises he had previously made to their fathers and made new promises. So again, he showed that as he, being the God of all creation, and being the God who is, is also a God who can be trusted the God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. But in the fullness of time, when God revealed Himself as the God who is eternally three persons in blessed union, three persons sharing fully in the one being of God, He did it not by speaking to a prophet, but by sending His very Son into the world. God made Himself known, finally and most fully, by bringing all of these promises that He made to those men of old to pass in His very Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has not ceased to be the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. But we do not primarily know Him by that relationship anymore. For this relationship precedes that one. That is, the relationship between the Father and the Son precedes the relationship between God and Abraham and all who followed Him. Because this is one that is rooted in eternity. It is the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one that was and is and will ever be. And now as we come to this text before us here in Luke's Gospel, we are presented with a special and unique privilege, as if we were invited to be flies on the wall in a place where something great is happening, some great moment in the course of history. And it is our privilege to listen to listen in as God speaks to God, God the Son speaks to God the Father. But it is not as if we were rudely eavesdropping in a conversation that is none of our business. So we have a, it is rather as if we are invited to listen, to observe, to see this relationship 
and to understand what it means for our life and the life to which Jesus has called us as people who through Him become children of God by virtue of our adoption. So as we've seen and will see, the things that are said here for the benefit of His disciples who were first heard by them were recorded for our benefit too so that we might know this covenant-keeping God more fully and more clearly and more precisely as He has made Himself known and so that that might lead us to rejoice in the self-same way that we see Jesus here rejoicing. As we see God bring to fulfillment all of His purposes in the person of Christ. Now here we're going to bring together some complex ideas, some complex theological ideas. And one approach to such situations is to take things one by one and slowly to deal with things one at a time. If you've been with me for some months, you know that that's not the way I approach these things. Rather, I blast them at you like a fire hose. But I do it the same again and again and again with the thought that if we take the several things together and repeatedly at first, it might be difficult to take it all in. But as you hear them again and again and begin to form connections in your mind, you will begin to receive them as a whole implanted in your mind and in your hearts and so be able to see how these things integrate together as a whole. So today we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not the first time we've talked about this together, both in the sermons on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights as some of us have gathered to study from Matthew and from the Gospel of John. We're going to talk about Christology, that is the person of Christ, and consider His full deity and His full humanity, two natures united indivisibly in one person. Here we look at the person of Christ as well in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to consider the doctrine of salvation, particularly as it bears upon the doctrine of adoption, our adoption into God's family as His children, as sons of God. We're going to think about the necessity of faith and repentance. And all of this is to say that we're going to talk about the gospel as we talk about every single week when we are together, but we're going to look deeper and deeper into the gospel, seeing that the gospel is not just something that can simply be summarized in a gospel tract and no more. But beneath that summary, as we drill down deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, we see that it's this truth, such a profound nature, that we will spend the rest of our lives together now and in eternity, contemplating and reflecting upon the truths that it has for us and glorying in these truths as we thank our Heavenly Father with joyful gratitude in our hearts. Passages like this afford us an opportunity to bring many of these ideas together. But how will we know it? How can we know, for example, that God indeed is such a being, that He is one being who exists, who exists eternally in three persons, not three beings divided, but three persons in perfect union, sharing in the self-same being of God, not dividing the being as if they were each one-third of God, but sharing fully in a perfect union, which we cannot fully comprehend, but we do confess and we do believe as Christians. How can we know these things? How can we know when we look at the person of Christ that this one person unites in himself indivisibly two natures, one divine, fully divine, which he never sets aside at any moment, and yet also in himself, a human nature, one like our nature, so that he is fully human and fully divine in one person. 
How can we know this? How can we know that we are saved by faith in Him? How can we know that we really, truly share in the privileges of that salvation as sons of God, as true heirs of this wonderful inheritance? How can we know these things are true? Well, the text helps us to see. As we look at these words in that same hour, we see Jesus rejoicing with great exaltation in the Holy Spirit. Luke shows us that it's the Holy Spirit who is empowering him to utter these words and also signals the importance of this text in this way. We see what he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The simple answer is that the only way that we can know these things is if God makes them known. No human being is so smart that he can reason this out. No human being knows so much that he can find where wisdom is hidden, where the wisdom of God is to be found. No person is so wise and understanding that he can sit down with mathematics or with physics or with some branch of science or history or philosophy and discern from his own mind the nature of God, the being of God. Surely from creation as we look at it, we can know true things about God. We can know that he is indeed God Almighty, that he is the creator of heaven and earth. We can know that we owe him our very lives because we are his creatures. We can know that we have a duty to him And we can know by the law which he has implanted in our hearts by virtue of the conscience he has given us that we fall short of his righteous standards. Whether we have the law before us written or not, we have that law in our hearts and we can know these things. But how can we know that he is eternally Father, Son, Holy Spirit and that by sending the Son, he invites us into a relationship with him We can only know it as He's revealed it to us. We cannot know it by our own wisdom. And this is why so many in the Gospel of Luke have failed to receive Christ for who He is. Because in their pride and in their arrogance, and we've seen it in the Pharisees and the scribes who thought they knew better, who thought they knew more, even as Jesus perceived the thoughts and intentions of their hearts, they continued to persist in thinking that they were the wise ones, they were the understanding ones, they were the, teacher of the teachers of the law. They knew better. So they rejected Jesus for who he was. They would not receive him because in their own eyes they were wise. In their own conceits they were understanding. And it was God's gracious will. His gracious will. Not his cruel will. His gracious will to conceal from them these truths concerning the person of Christ. These truths concerning the nature of God. Because this truth, believed and received, is saving truth. Salvation will never, ever come apart from God's grace. It will not come from a work of the mind. It will not come because the wise philosophers of any age have reasoned it out. In fact, it cannot come, for God conceals these truths from those who are wise and understanding in the eyes of the world. And that's His gracious will. And we ought to reflect on the fact that Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, rejoiced and thanked God for this fact. 
that God demonstrated His great grace and His great love. First in this way, by concealing these truths, these wonderful, astounding truths, from those who were too proud to see past their own nose, see what was plain before their face, when Jesus did things like calm storms and walk on water and heal lepers and raise the dead. They could not see, they would not see, because they would not recognize their own foolishness, their own inability, and their own need to respond to that plain preaching that we heard from John the Baptist and again from Jesus, that they must repent of their sins. And yet the flip side of that coin, the gracious will of God, is that He does not conceal it from all, but He has made these things known to little children. And as we've seen that little children are archetypical, that they are paradigmatic, they are the supreme examples of those who are small in the eyes of the world in that ancient culture. Not like our own culture where we tend to value little children, but rather a culture that didn't value someone until he could contribute to society. And as we read a quote from one commentator in a society where infant mortality was common, they did not value children very much. And so they looked at children as the least and the last of them, people who were to be thrust aside before our Lord. But he was one who said, let the little children come to me, and who even taught his disciples that you will not see the kingdom unless you become like one of these. Not in terms of going back in time and somehow reversing the process of aging, but rather one who humbles himself before the Lord. What is a child like even as I look and see children in our own midst? What do they do? They depend upon their parents. They look to their parents for everything they need. They love their parents. They trust their parents. They have the humility to recognize that they can't provide for themselves. and So they look to those who can. What do people who become like little children exhibit in their own lives before our Almighty God. They recognize their insufficiency, they recognize their need of God, and they depend upon Him. And this begins with an act of repentance, which is a turning of the mind, as we've said, and a turning of the heart that issues forth in actions that are consistent with repentance. Fruit that flows forth from repentance, as John the Baptist had said. We change our mind about what is right, so that we no longer stand as the lords of our own life, determining right from wrong, but we trust the Lord who has revealed His will for our lives. So we change our minds, and then we pursue that, failing and stumbling as we often do. We make it our life's aim to pursue God's ways and God's wills, recognizing that the one who knows all things, the one who is Lord of heaven and earth, is wiser than us, infinitely so. So we trust Him completely and fully. That's what it means to become a little child. If you have not come to that point in your life today of repenting of your sin, of recognizing that before God you can never measure up to His perfect standard, and so repent, turn your mind concerning yourself and concerning His Word, and turn your life in that way. And humble yourself before Almighty God that He might lift you up if you haven't come to that point in your life, then I encourage you to do it now. In your mind, in the quiet of your heart, go before the Lord God and recognize and acknowledge this reality that you are indeed a sinner. You, that is, are one who have violated God's law 
whether you know it from His Word or you simply know it in your heart, and there is no excuse, and yet there is a way of salvation, and the first step from your vantage point is the step of repentance. That is the first step, as, and God has assured us that the one who dwells on high, as He says in Isaiah 57, also makes His dwelling place with the one who is humble and contrite in the heart. And this you can take as a promise. If you do that, you can know that He will make Himself known to you through His Son. But you must begin there. Otherwise, everything else that you hear from God's Word this morning will be, sound like nothing but gibberish. You will not be able to comprehend it with the eyes of faith, with the ears that truly hear. So we must begin, always, with that first step of repentance. This passage shows us that, for it's God's gracious will to hide from those who are wise in their own eyes these saving truths and to reveal them to little children. Well, what is it that He reveals to us in this passage as we simply stand on the wall and observe what is going on as Jesus prays to the Father? What we see is this, a relationship between distinct persons who share equally in divine attributes on account of that relationship. Consider how Jesus refers to God as He prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. There are two designations there, and both of them are crucially important. The first is the word Father, and the second is the the conjunction of terms Lord of heaven and earth. Here we'll take that second term first. Heaven and earth is a way in the Hebrew mind of speaking of all things. To say He's Lord of heaven and earth is to say that He is Lord of all things. Two things as far apart from one another as they can be, comprehending the whole. That is the idea of saying He's the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of everything that exists. He is God Almighty in the language that He spoke to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. He is that self-same God who revealed Himself to Moses as the God who is, apart from all the gods who are not. All the fictitious gods. He is that self-same God, Lord of heaven and earth. And yet Jesus Christ relates to Him also as Father. He calls Him Father, and that's not just an arbitrary designation. It's one that is proper to the first person of the triune God. To call Him Father is to say something with meaning. It's to indicate a real and true relationship. It's a relationship that is more real than even our relationships between our children and our parents. Our relationships are patterned after that relationship, but that one is the real and the true and the eternal relationship. To say that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit is to recognize a relationship between the Father and the Son which has existed for all eternity. So Jesus refers to Himself as the Son throughout this text and speaks of God as His Father. But how can we describe that relationship? How can we understand it? In John chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus said this of Himself, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, in verse 14 and 18 of chapter 1, and verse 16 and 18 of chapter 3, and in His first letter in 1 John 4, 9, 
John refers to Jesus as the one who is the only begotten Son of God. He is the only begotten Son of God. Now, what do these things have to do with each other? That the Son has life in Himself as a grant from the Father who has life in Himself. Or in this text as we see it, as the Father has handed over all things to the Son. What does it have to do with that language of Father and Son, and that language from John's Gospel in his first letter of only begotten Son? It's just this, that the relationship between the Father and the Son can be described in this way, that the Son is distinct from the Father because He is from the Father. You can go and search, you will not find anywhere at all of Scripture where the Father is described as being from the Son, where the Father is described as being begotten of the Son. Nor will you find anywhere in all of Scripture where the Father is from the Spirit or the Son is from the Spirit, begotten or otherwise. You always see the relationship conveyed in this way, that the Son is from the Father as the one who is the only begotten Son of the Father, and the Spirit is from the Father and the Son as the one who is sent forth from them, the one who proceeds from them. Well, what does all that mean? It's simply an indication of a relationship that distinguishes one person of the triune Godhead from another person of the triune God. They're distinguished by that relationship that then can be summarized in those words, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, final designation, speaking to the idea of proceeding from others. Here, we see that the relationship of the Father and the Son is one of eternal begottenness. But here, understand what I'm saying. I am not saying that He was begotten in time. I was begotten by my Father in time. If we use that old-fashioned language that we find in the King James Version, so-and-so begat so-and-so. There was a time, a day, when I was begotten by my Father. And so too there were there was a time, a day, when my children were begotten by me as a fact of history. But the begottenness of the only Son of God is not something that happened and was over. It is something that is true eternally and forever. He has that quality of being from the Father always. How can we wrap our minds around that? How can we understand that? Can you draw a circle around an infinitely long line? You cannot comprehend that which is infinite, but you can know it truly when the infinite one makes it known to you. Do you see the difference between seeking to understand fully in our minds what we can never understand because it is infinite and acknowledging to be true that which God has revealed to us? This is why so many go wrong when it comes to this doctrine of the Trinity because they think that in their own mind, by the, by, by the rules of logic or philosophy, they can prove that this is untrue, that it cannot be true, because they think that their finite minds can fully comprehend the infinite God. It can never be. But the infinite God has made Himself known in this way, that He eternally and always, forever has existed in this relationship that is proper to one who is eternally Father, one who is eternally Son, not a relationship that ever began, nor a relationship that will ever end. And so then, in the coming of the Son into this world, we see that what He does is consistent with His relationship to the Father. 
He is the one who is sent from the Father. He is the one who receives the grant of life in himself from the Father. And you remember those words then from John 5, 26. As the Father has life in himself, this is self-existent life, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Self-existent life. The only way that the Son can have that kind of life, not just life, but self-existent life in himself as a grant, is it for it to be an eternal reality. Something that has no beginning and no end. Try to wrap your mind around that. And you cannot. But you can know it's true. And so too in this text we see this demonstrated in the way Jesus speaks about his relationship to the Father. All things, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And what you see here in the relationship of the Son to the Father is one where he has his fromness, his, his origin from the Father, and he receives from the Father all that he has, and yet at the same time, in equality of nature, he is the same God but not the same person. He has the same authority, the same power. For the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of all things, has given all things to the Son. So that He has the self-same authority and power. And this is not speaking about something that will take place at His ascension, when God exalts Him to His right hand, and when He receives, when He, like Son of Man, when He receives from Him a kingdom without end, for he says it now before these things as a true reality. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. So we see in this the equality of the Father and the Son. So we know as God reveals this through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not know this truth that God is triune because God dictated a systematic theology in several volumes to one of his prophets at some point in history. We know it because he loved us so dearly that he sent his son into the world to die for us, to give his life for us, so that we might be redeemed through him and come into that relationship with him. He made it known to us in the most personal way possible, so that when we see the one who is the son, who is distinct from the Father and dependence upon the Father and yet asserts His full equality with the Father. We see Him doing it through the Holy Spirit, empowering Him. We know that God is. The God who is one is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that revelation as little children, trusting our Heavenly Father, who has said it is, it is so, even if we can never fully comprehend it. That is this gracious revelation, this blessed revelation that God here through Christ by the Holy Spirit made known to His disciples. For as He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom He chooses to reveal Him. You can know God Almighty as Abraham knew God Almighty. You can know God as I am, as Moses knew God as I am. But the only way that you can know God as Father, 
and God as Son is because the Father makes known to you the Son and the Son makes known to you the Father. This is why I've said before and I'll say again, revelation of the Trinity is revelation of the Father by the Son through the Holy Spirit and revelation of the Son by the Father through the Holy Spirit. This is how we know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does this all matter? Why do we consider this? The answer is that because in the fullness of time, as we read from the Apostle Paul, as we heard from Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, not just so that you and I might know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and have an interesting philosophical discussion about that truth. That's not what Paul said. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that is, in our likeness, born like us. As the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, as we read it, considered in Luke chapter 1 several months ago, in Luke chapter 2, Born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. To ransom us, to, re to redeem us from that slavery so that we might receive, what? Adoption as sons. So we might no longer be slaves under the law, but children of God and sons. Whether you're a man or a woman, the Bible calls you a son of God. Why? Because in that ancient context, it was the son who was the heir. It was the son who had the inheritance. And whether you are a man or a woman, in Christ you are called a son of God because you are an heir through adoption. Because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son and made this glorious truth about himself known so that those who receive him by faith might be redeemed by his blood on the cross and come into that beautiful, blessed relationship as children of God. Not people who depend upon their strength, not people who depend upon their own wisdom, not people who depend upon their might, but people who depend upon their heavenly Father for all things, even as the eternal Son of God, who is equal with the Father, also depends upon the Father. For all that He has, all things, life in Himself, all is granted to Him by His Father. Do not mistake me, I do not mean that we will become like Him in the superlative degree. Certainly would not teach that somehow we will become equal with the Father and the Son. But we will share in the relationship in terms of its quality, in terms of that intimacy of a child with his Father. We share in that relationship through Christ and through Christ alone. It is a relationship that is worth sharing in, that we should yearn for, because it is a relationship that is marked by mutual knowledge and love, as we've seen testified here. The Father knows the Son exclusively and only. The Son knows the Father exclusively and only. And only by way of revelation can we come into that knowledge in any sense. As one confession of faith puts it, we believe in one God eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. I love those simple words which are so rarely found in any other confessions. They know, love, and glorify one another. 
This one true and living God is infinitely perfect, both in His love and in His holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. Immortal and eternal, He is perfectly and exhaustively Knowing, knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about His eternal good purposes to redeem a people for Himself and restore His fallen creation to the praise of His glorious grace. You see, the author of those words could have been looking at Luke 10, 21 through 22 as he wrote those words. Of the three who know, love, and glorify one another, who have made the one God known to us, so that we might live forever in fellowship with Him to the praise of His glorious grace. This is indeed a gracious and blessed revelation that Jesus made known to His disciples and He makes known to us with a beatitude that those who see this, those who hear these things, we might infer those who receive these things are truly blessed for kings and prophets longed to see such things and did not see such things. They longed to see the fulfillment of God's purposes brought to their fulfillment. They knew not how, but ultimately which would be brought to their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it was for a later generation. It's for us if we hear His word and we receive it as the gracious revelation of our Heavenly Father, not something that can be worked out by our own reason and our own wisdom something that must be received with the humility of faith preceded by the humility of repentance. And to those who do receive it, the Apostle John says in John chapter 1, the true light which gives light to everyone, speaking of Christ, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the beautiful truth, the beautiful reality that comes to us through this revelation. Now, it's also deeply applicable in our lives, and I want to conclude with these applications. You see, Luke shows this gradually across his gospel. What I've shown you from Galatians chapter 4, what I've shown you from John chapter 1, that the revelation of the Son has a redemptive purpose. And that redeeming purpose, that redemptive purpose, has another purpose of restoration, to restore something that was lost when Adam ate the fruit in the garden a relationship that was severed, but not to restore it as it once was, but to restore it in a better way, in Christ and through Christ. God sent forth His Son to reveal Himself, to redeem a people, and to restore us to that relationship with Him as children of God. And that has bearing upon our life now if we are in Christ. It should encourage us, and it should guide us as we think about how to live in relationship with one another. For if you are in Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister. And I am your brother, and, your sis and, and you are my sisters and brothers. You see that this relationship, what it means for us, that we are brought into a fellowship with one another. And we've seen this in Luke, how what Jesus is doing 
It relativizes human relationships. It doesn't erase them. It doesn't change the fact that we, as in, within the context of marriages, give birth to children and those are our children and we are responsible for them. But it does relativize those things. Let me show you a few ways in which it does that. I'll remind you in Luke chapter 9 how there was this man who came to Jesus and wanted to follow him. But he said, first, let me go bury my father. And in verse 60, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now we've seen in an earlier moment in this gospel how Jesus' own mother and brothers sought to see him, but he looked around him and he said, these are my mother and brothers and sisters, those who do the will of my Father in heaven. He was not denying the human relationship, one which he would surely affirm at the cross when he said to the Apostle John, behold your mother, behold your son, and committed the care of his mother to his disciple. But he was relativizing those, subordinating those to what was more important. That request to go and bury the dead father, as we considered, seemed quite reasonable from our human perspective. What Jesus was showing that man was that nothing he calls us to do is unreasonable, even at the expense of burying our dead fathers. The relationship that he calls us into must take precedence over all relationships. And sometimes this is a happy reality. We saw at the very beginning of Luke's gospel in the description of John's ministry in Luke 1.17 how he would call the people to repentance and that was characterized in this way that he would turn the fathers to the children. That fathers in Israel who received these words and repented at the preaching of John would then turn their attention to their children in a particular way where they sought with a renewed desire to raise their children in the fear of the Lord. That is the idea. That there's a restoration of those relationships that comes through repentance. We can apply that in our lives. Those of us who have children who are still within our care, we continue to have this responsibility to raise those children in the fear of the Lord, to guide them to the one who brings them into a relationship with God. That is our responsibility. But you're not alone in this. If you don't have children, or if your children are grown, you still have a relationship to us and to these children in our midst and have an ability and a responsibility to help in that nurture, to encourage young ones in our midst, to grow in the knowledge of God, to guide them to the, into the fear of the Lord, to help parents to do that well in their context. Even if you, your, your children, you've never had children and cannot have children, you can be someone who has many children here in Christ. As Paul became like a father to Timothy so that he could call Timothy my true son. You think of this context and how this new reality in our life reframes the way we think about life together. It does not destroy those human relationships that we have, and it does encourage us to a renewed commitment and responsibility to those children who are committed to our care, if we are mothers and fathers. But it also encourages us to look beyond the boundaries of our human relationships and see here in this context the family that God has given us. And we're encouraged if our relationships have been broken because of the gospel. And Jesus talks about that too in Luke. 
how sometimes a family is broken because fathers are turned against sons and sons against fathers. Because one believes and one does not. Because one follows and one does not. And we'll see that again and again. And yet, Jesus assured his disciples, no one has left anything, not even father or mother or children, who will not be rewarded. A hundred times more so in this life with persecutions and with eternal life in the age to come. As we read in the Gospel of Mark, we may lose relationships that we held dear, but we gain so many new ones that are real and true. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I am your brother in Christ because of what God did in sending the Son to bring us into this new relationship. I'll leave you with that thought then. This changes the way in which we relate to one another in this age and forever because we are brought into a new relationship that we did not previously enjoy in this age and forever in Christ so that we may truly call God our Father and so pray to Him. Let's go to Him now. Father in heaven, What a joyful truth to be able to look in the eyes of other believers and say, you are my brother, you are my sister, because God is our Father, Christ is our Savior, and our Lord. What a gracious revelation. May we receive it as just that, this gracious gift. May we receive it as you've given it to us, through Christ and not apart from him. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not be those who are wise and understanding in our own eyes, but those who are wise and understanding because we have the wisdom that comes from you. For you, O oh Lord, store up treasures of wisdom for those who seek you by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.